Welcome to Restore, a podcast seeking to restore the vision, restore the mission, restore the church. And now your host, Javier Diaz. Hi, everyone. Welcome or welcome back to the Restore podcast. This is episode 80. My name is Javier and I am your host. From wherever you may be listening to this podcast, I want to thank you for taking the time And I pray that this and every episode of the podcast will in some even small way help your faith journey, that it will help restore the vision, restore the mission, restore the church. On today's episode, I speak with Dr. Carl Hafner. Dr. Hafner is currently the Vice President for Student Experience at Loma Linda University. He has previously served as a pastor for over 30 years, most recently serving for 12 years at Kettering Seventh-day Adventist Church. Dr. Hafner has also authored 13 books and more than 1,000 articles for various denominational publications. Above all, the more I've gotten to know him, the more I see how much he loves Jesus. As I often say, I know that you will be blessed and perhaps challenged by some of our conversation as we dive into his faith journey, calling to pastoral ministry, leadership, and more. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Carl Hafner. Well, I am delighted to welcome Dr. Carl Hafner to the Restorer podcast. Carl, welcome. Greetings, Javier. Great to see you. Likewise, Carl, it's great to see you. Um, we just came back from spending a few days together at Camp Kulakwa as you ministered to our pastor. So first, thank you again for doing that. I know we received many, many, many positive feedback on your presentations. What a blessing that was. What a great spirit in your conference. And there truly no better group to hang out with for a few days than a group of pastors. Uh, mm. Having come from that line of work for many, many years, uh, it's just always something special that happens when you have some time together. So thank you. Praise the Lord. We, we thank you again for being with us. But with that said, something we didn't really talk publicly too much about as we spent those days t- together was Really, your call to ministry, your faith journey, and as those who follow the Restore podcast know, that's a question that I always ask my guests my when they're on the podcast. So, Carl, please tell us a little bit about your faith journey and call to ministry. Yeah, I grew up in a pastor's home. I am a fourth-generation Seventh-day Adventist pastor. Mm. My great-grandpa started the German work in Dakota, North Dakota, South Dakota. And so we go way back. Uh, That said, um, I was never real clear on my calling. I think back in college and I must have had every major at one point or another known to humankind. I mean, I I was a major in some area of study uh, for everything. And it, it just bounced back and forth. And, you know, one week I was going to do this and then I started dating a young woman and she said, well, you know, I'm only going to marry a uh, doctor. So then I signed up for pre-med and didn't really like those courses. And then eventually I settled into business 
and uh, theology, but still fairly unclear what I wanted to do. I was pretty sure I would not make a good pastor of a local church. I had watched my dad do this all of Mm. his career. And uh, so eventually I landed in the office of a career counselor at the university there. And I remember him asking me questions like, well, uh, what what would make every day feel like Christmas? And I I don't know, you know, playing Santa Claus at the mall or I no, not quite so literally, he says, you know, what, what, what do you love to do? And I hesitated to share the first answer that came to my mind uh, because it didn't feel like the right answer. But I said, I really do love uh, Christian drama and I love creative expressions through art of, of the gospel. Uh, and he sort of steered me down a pathway of, well, maybe you do this and that. And, and so eventually I graduated double major business and theology and figured, well, I'll take, I'll give it a year or two if I get a call, which was not a given, but I did get a call to pastor in the Seattle area. Okay. And uh, it was to start a church. Hmm. And at first, I I just told the conference president, please don't make me do that. And whatever you do, I just, I don't want to do that. I had no experience. Now, at that point, I had been to the seminary. And so I had a lot of education and money invested in being a pastor now. But um, he said, basically, well, thanks for being honest with what you want to do and don't want to do, but go start the church. And as I shared with you at the workers meeting out here, I started this church and it was just really hard. Hmm. And uh, after a few years, I found myself pouring over the want added, want or help wanted ads and um, just prayed, God, anything but this. I am done hmm. with planting this church. I just was sick of the petulant whining and so on. And in the middle of the prayer, my head deacon, like 6'4", 280, a big guy calls and says, Hafner, I know we're going through hard stuff at the church right now, but if you ever think about bailing on ministry, uh, I will come to your house and break both your legs. <laughs> and remember, he hissed, I Mercy. know where you live. And I went back to my prayer and uh said, so, Lord, you, you could have been a little more subtle, but, but <laughs> I get it. You know, I, I felt uh, at that time of my life in that season that I was right in the center of God's will, even though it was just messy and church planting is hard and yeah. I had no experience. But at the same time, I felt like I was doing what God had created me and put me on this earth to do. And so ended up staying there for 10 years in Seattle. And then I moved to Walla Walla College at the time, now university, and pastored that church for 10 years. And then on to Kettering College and working with Kettering Health Hmm. for the next 12 years. So what I thought would be a year or two, and if I didn't like it, I was going to do something else, uh, ended up being over three decades of my life. And I was always in a ministry context that was really fulfilling. And I absolutely loved, once we got that church plant rolling, uh, it was such a 
such a beautiful season of ministry. Hmm. And we watched God just do amazing things and watched that little church uh, grow. And then for the next 22 years on the campus of a university, which is just life-giving to me. There's Hmm. nothing that excites me more than to just be around college students. And Hmm. that was just a really good fit. So uh, even though I did Like I mentioned, I took a business degree in college and then took an MBA because I always wanted that hatched hatch door open if I wanted to go do something else. I wanted to train uh, to be able to do something else if and when I decided to. So anyway, that's a little bit of my calling to ministry. Uh, A bit of a Jonah story, I suppose, but (laughs) we ended up where God wanted us, I think. Praise the Lord. No, thank you for sharing. I I want to go back to that church plant. I think it's it's a unique aspect, right? So they asked you to plant this church. You get to Seattle, Washington. What's the first thing that you do? You kind of already talked about it, but what were some of your first initiatives? And as a young pastor coming in a place like Seattle to plant a church during that time, this was, yeah. what year was this? And- I know. I know we're going to oh, give your age job. What year was this, yeah, if you don't mind? No, that's okay. Uh, uh, let's see. It was 89. Okay. Uh, 1989. So okay. not 1889, but yeah, <laughs> it was a long time ago. And oh, Javier, we had no idea what we were doing. We had no children. We had just graduated you know, from Andrew's seminary. But the mm-hmm. first thing I did, I contacted some of the friends that we had from Walla Walla who we had gone to college together and begged them to join me hmm. in this adventure. And then we would make regular trips from Seattle to Walla Walla. And I remember putting brochures into all the mailboxes uh, in both of the dorms to the student saying, if you're a senior and if you're moving to Seattle, because there's a lot of engineers right. at Walla Walla, if you're moving there to work for Boeing or for Microsoft or mm. whatever, Seattle's a big employee, right? a lot of opportunities to work there. And we got many students who uh, joined us that way. Mm. And that was kind of the core that we launched the church with. And uh, again, all of us were so young and had no idea what we were doing. But again, when I talked to that career counselor and he pressed me, oh, well, what, what do you really love to do? One of the beautiful things about a church plant is that we were doing dramas every week. We did this Christian dinner theater called yeah. Eats and Acts. And mm-hmm. it started just basically as a nativity scene. And then that grew Every year we added to it until eventually it grew to become uh, a living nativity drive-through is what mm. we called it. And we would get over, over the two weekends, we would get over 10,000 people driving wow. through and then we would hand all of And so you kind of drive through the Christmas stories. So we right. were doing a lot of really fun and creative things back in the day. But I I will say this, (laughs) I am so thankful 
that this was before the days of podcasting everything and streaming YouTubing and, and some, posting yeah. everything, streaming. We had none right. of that. And <laughs> I think back to some of the things that I said in sermons and just blush at how, I don't know what I was thinking. Sometimes try to be funny or sarcastic. I don't know, but I just thank God. None of that, as far as I know, is recorded for forever. Uh, <laughs> because there's a lot of things from that hole I'd just as soon forget. But <laughs> Sure. But it seems, with that said, though, it seems, and uh, forgive me for spending a little time here, um, I love pastors, love church planters. I think church planting is one of the most beautiful things anybody can do or be part of, but also one of the yeah. most incredibly difficult things. Uh, one of them in ministry that one can do is to plant a church. And it seems that that was obviously your experience, right? It was very beautiful and very difficult. Uh, but also within that tension, you have the ability to experiment and do a lot of things that you would not be able to most likely do in other churches, which I think right. is still the case even today at su- at some level, right? So uh, but then, as you said, there there comes a lot of um, well, maybe we shouldn't do that, whatever that is, and let's let's not do that anymore. <laughs> let's try something we had, else. We had a few of those things. I remember once we were brainstorming for an upcoming series, and mm-hmm. I was talking about um, "You Are the Light of the World" was the text, and okay. somebody on our planning team said, "Oh, you know, I saw it work. This magician who did this wonderful thing with candles and so on." So we scheduled him to come to a church service. Okay. And didn't really communicate clearly what we were expecting, but Mm. oh man, it was just so, (laughs) it was so cringy. And he started out with card tricks and he had a scantily clad assistant there. He made disappear and solder and half and all this stuff. And I went on for probably uh, I don't know, 45 minutes or an hour, and wow. it had nothing to do with light. And then kind of at the end, he pull out a candle and, hey, you're the light of the world kind of deal. Oh, and, boy. You know, I, and it just so happened that that week, the conference president, had he came about once a year to the church, and he happened to be there. And so I called him and said, do you need my letter of resignation now, or should I wait till Monday? And, uh, you know, I, I still remember he was so incredibly supportive and he mm. said, uh, you go back to that worship planning team and you commend them for being willing to try something different and for their creative heart and, and mm. spirit and, um, just, you know, don't do that again, obviously, <laughs> but don't, don't, Powerful. you know, yeah, don't, don't stop trying things and when they backfire like they do on occasion um just learn from it move on don't yeah don't worry about it so i i'm very grateful for him as my mentor in the Mm. the church planting yeah Yeah. well that's that's always extremely important and that's to have just that affirmation from the conference that has your back in that aspect particularly when you're experimenting in moving forward with church planting. So yeah, praise the Lord for that. 
Carl, with that said, you have pastored, as you mentioned, for well over 30 years, 35 years, and with the different stints that you mentioned from that church planting that we just talked about, Walla Walla, and then, of course, uh, 12 years at Kettering, right? I think it was 12 mm-hmm. years yeah. uh, before coming to Loma Linda, which we'll talk about in a moment. But tell me, what are, what are some of the greatest leadership pastoral lessons that, that you've learned over that time? We, you just mentioned a few when it comes to church planting, but along with those, what are some yeah. of your thoughts? Oh, it's a great question. Uh, the word that comes to mind immediately is trust. Hmm. And as I reflect on all those years of working with pastoral teams and with, uh, you know, church leadership teams, et cetera, volunteers and so on, um, you know, I, I just am more and more convicted of the idea that uh, everything rises and falls on the trust that you that you build and, or that you break. And when trust is violated in a church or in a team, it really complicates everything. And I Mm. just think of people that I have worked with, all of them without any exceptions are people that over the years, we've just been able to build a lot of trust. And I just, Mm. I trust them. I trust their heart. And then when you know, things happen that backfire. I know their hearts. And from my end, to constantly be reminding myself of the importance of being trustworthy and just in even little things. If I say I'm going to be somewhere on time, show up on time. And mm. or if somebody gives me a piece of information that I might violate trust. If I shared it beyond to just hold those sacred tasks as just that as sacred. And I, I don't know how many times through the years, church members have said things to my wife, Sheree, like and just assuming that I would have told her about whatever mm. they had shared with me or whatever. And Sheree has often said, Carl never talks about any of this stuff to me. If if you talk to him about it, you can just assume I know nothing about it. And I have presented a couple of times with Stephen Covey, who wrote the book, The Speed of Trust, which wow. I think is a great leadership book that things just work so much more efficiently from a leadership perspective when there's a high level of trust. I think back, there's a few seasons in 30 plus years of ministry that were just brutal, mm. just hellish. And in all cases, you can boil it down to breaking our trust. Mm. So that's the first word that comes to mind relative to leadership. Before you, you move forward with another leadership lesson, mm-hmm. was there a time when somebody broke that trust, which I'm sure has happened, and and then you were able to restore that trust. What did that look like? It's interesting, Javier, that you should ask me that question because just this morning, hmm. I'm working through a situation where trust was broken and I'm about to have a conversation where that really is the question. Is this reparable? And I think, yeah, hmm. I do think, I absolutely think you can restore trust, but I think it takes 
much, much longer than we wish that it would. Yeah. Certainly that's true. Mm. Or then that we eventually think that it, it will. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, it's just a long, a long process of rebuilding trust when it's been, when it's been broken. And I think sometimes it is beyond repair. Right. And not right. that they can't be restored and sure. that things aren't right between me and God or them and God or whatever, not talking in that sense, but mm. uh, just in terms of being able to work forward together, I think of marriages and no doubt you have worked with many couples where yeah. there was a breach of trust. And is it possible for reconciliation to happen? Of course. Yeah, it is in, in many cases, but not always. And right. it takes time. It's not a quick, I'm sorry, I blew it. Uh, I'll never, whatever, have an affair again. Okay, that, that's a good starting point, I suppose. But, you know, mm. you don't really demonstrate that in a day or two or a week or two or even a year or two there's mm. always that damage that has been done i was praying this morning what would it look like for in this situation i'm thinking about for trust to be restored and i i don't know hmm. um no i appreciate i appreciate the honesty and I love that. I love that the first thing that came to your mind was trust. Trust is the foundation of It is, isn't it? Yeah. Of 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 working with with anybody in any place in any time in any group and then the power that that has in being able to move whatever the mission of the organization may be when it comes to being able to trust each other, right? Absolutely. Because it's all relationships, pastoring or whatever we do. The quality of our lives is directly proportional to the quality of our relationships, I have mm. always thought and said. And really, the basis of all relationships, in my thinking, has to be trust. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Along with trust, any, any other leadership lessons? I can speak maybe my theological journey and what I've kind of learned, you know, what God has done just in terms of my own ministry and how I've sort of evolved and come to the, the point that I am now. And that would be, I think, back in my first 10 years of ministry in Seattle and the first decade. And uh, I was I was really into, uh, you know, make every effort, and uh, I identify very much with the elder brother and the story of the prodigal son, and mm. you need to do things in this way, and it's right or it's wrong, and very black and white, and it was all a lot about trying really hard to, to do good and be good and look the part of a pastor, etc. And then the next season of ministry when I was at Walla Walla, that kind of morphed into, it's not just about trying really hard to, to be good and please God, but it really has to do with, with discipline and training and hmm. the you know, celebration of disciplines. You know, I read that book a couple of times and, yeah. and 
it's all about you need to, you know, just you need to do your devotions and you need to pray and you need to do all of these. Uh, and I think there's a lot of spiritual truth in that, no question. But then in my next season of ministry in Ohio, I really gained clarity that ultimately it's not just about trying hard and it's not just about training and exercising the spiritual disciplines, but ultimately, and here we come back to trust, so it ties into leadership as well, but Mm. it's about trusting God and Mm. trusting him with every season of salvation. Mm. So, of course, it's easy to trust God that I am justified by faith in Christ alone. Nothing I can do can earn right standing with God. I think most Christ followers are good with that. And then ultimately, when we talk about glorification, I don't think anybody really argues about, I will be glorified, taken from this earth to the earth made new because I have the capacity to fly it. We will be glorified Hmm. on that day by Christ and Christ alone. I can trust him in both of those arenas. But then when you get to that middle part, Mm. Uh, which is our lives right now and that sanctification, that miracle of being transformed into the heart, the likeness, and the character of Jesus, that's where I really struggle. And I think a lot of Christians struggle with really believing that we are are sanctified only by Mm. Christ. And... uh, The only thing I have to do and that only I can do is to live in that space of surrender to God's spirit and to live moment by moment surrendered to God. And then only he can do the sanctifying part Mm. and just trusting him Mm. to make me a more loving person, a more joy-filled person, Mm. uh, a more patient person. And so that has more and more been my prayer is, God, just may I abide in you in this moment, and I'm going to trust you to make me into the kind of person you need me to be. And I'm just going to trust you to do that, and I'm not going to work hard on being more patient because I know it's so frustrating. Hmm. The way I've illustrated it many times through the years is people think about spiritual life so often. Like it's this difficult assignment, like we're put out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean amidst 10 foot swells with the assignment of keeping 100 beach balls submerged underwater all at the same time. Hmm. Uh, And if you're a really strong swimmer, you might keep this one under and that one and that one, but eventually they pop up and it's just a recipe for disaster and defeat every time. And so a lot of times people think about the life of faith, like, well, look, I know the shadow side and my thoughts, and I know how sinful I am hmm. and my motives. And But I think if I can just keep this beach ball, if I can just keep pride and gluttony and lust and all of this stuff under the surface so you don't see these things, then at least you'll think of me as holy hmm. and righteous, which is just a recipe for defeat and frustration every time because you just can't 
keep all these things under. And so what's the answer? Get out of the water and into the boat with Jesus and Mm. live in the presence of Christ and trust him to change us and to change our desires and our motives and our thoughts Mm. and to just allow him to change us. And so I've kind of been through this journey of, of trying and training, but ultimately landing on the trusting, just trusting that he who began a good work in me, he is faithful and he will complete it. Beautiful. Carl, I think many as are listening are absolutely relating to what you have just said in these moments. What are some of the ways that have helped you to trust Jesus? What are some of the ways or some of the things that you have done to help you further trust Jesus? Yeah. And this, I think, is where the spiritual disciplines comes in. Yeah. How do we live in the presence of Jesus? And so we go back to that season where I was obsessed with preaching about training and the celebration of disciplines and so on. How do we live in Christ? And there I would point to consistent Bible study, exposing our thoughts to the life-transforming Word of God, uh, prayer, meditation, or contemplation, maybe a bad word to use, but I, I think it's a very important part of reflection and just sort of this unhurried lingering in the presence of God. Mm. I think service is one of the best hands-on ways that we experience the life of Christ, what it feels like to live and love like Jesus did. And how do we abide in Christ? I think a lot of it is the same way that we build trust and grow together in friendship and relationship with one another, that there's no substitute for time and priority and intentionality. And so uh, another thing that I like to do, and I think some of this has to do with how we're wired and our learning styles and that kind of thing. I am a huge sermon junkie. And so I, mm. I listen to, to, and now with, you know, YouTube, you can, yeah. <laughs> it's a beautiful world. You can just listen to sermons 24 seven on whatever yeah. topic you want. And uh, so I do that. I, I remember years ago um, seeing uh, the organist's collection of CDs, and they were just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, you know, CDs of mm-hmm. organ music. Yeah. And it struck me, this is how he connects with God. I don't have one CD of organ music. <laughs> I don't even have hardly any CDs of, of Christian music. Uh, but I have, you know, I had, I just not that long ago, threw out literally garbage bags full of thousands of cassette tapes. Wow. Uh, I finally came to the point of uh, accepting the reality the technology <laughs> is probably not coming back. Uh, I don't know. So anyway, but now I can, you know, so, but that's, that is what feeds me. And that's what I love yeah. sermons. I sure. love everything about sermons. Uh, and so, 
Uh, so I think some of it is individualized to the person, but I think some of the basic things of the spiritual disciplines is that's the primary way and avenue that God uses to change us into his likeness and what it looks like to abide in mm. Christ and invite him to abide in us. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you for that. Along with the disciplines that you mentioned, we also yeah. have the discipline of getting up and running, praying and thinking and being God's presence as we run. Is that a practice that you've had for a long time? Have you been a runner for a long time? Yeah, uh, to call me You're a smiling runner right now is, oh, <laughs> is totally generous. But yeah, I have always been fairly assiduous about exercising regularly, and running seems to be the most time economical way to do that. And especially if I travel, it's always easiest just to get up and run. In my old age, I'm gone more toward just walking my dog every morning. But <laughs> yeah, I, I do think that's a great metaphor. And, and Paul uses yeah. that metaphor. Sure. I, I've run the race. Hmm. And I think that's a, and it's not, it takes some effort to, yeah. to jog, but then that ultimately you can do by training what you can never just do by trying. So mm. if you start out and say, I want to, for example, I, I was way off on, in that first church, another thing that we did was an Adventist marathon clinic is what, and we invited community members and then we all trained together on Sunday mornings. And then a bunch of us went and ran the Honolulu marathon. So that was way, way, way back. But a very, very slow time. And then I was talking to a friend who had done a lot of marathons. And he, he was saying, you really should try to qualify uh, to run the Boston Marathon. Now, mm -hmm. I wasn't even close. I was an hour off the time I needed to be at the time. And he said, well, look, if you will commit to eight months of training, I promise you, you can qualify. Uh, and so I did exactly what he told me, ran hills, ran sprints around the track and, and mm -hmm. lost some weight and this and that and the other. And eventually, yeah, I was able to qualify. But it was because of that long-term training. And so mm -hmm. I think the same principle rings true in the spiritual realm sure. that it is through training that allows us to do what we could never just do by trying real hard. Weightlifting, whatever metaphor you want to use. Right. I can't bench press X number of pounds right now, but if I were to train for the next eight months, that would enable me to do it. Mm. So I think that is how sanctification happens. Absolutely. Praise the Lord. Thank you for that, Carl. With that said, Carl, the world essentially changed in March of 2020 as you were settling into your new role at Loma Linda University. Tell us a bit about what does your new role entail and how did you navigate that transition in the midst of everything that happened in 2020 up until now, I guess I can say, right? Because that must have been crazy going from oh, Kettering yeah. and then entering, going to California, Loma Linda. And I believe you were transitioning in the end of 2019, right into 2020. Exactly. And then again, March 2020 happened. So. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. And speaking of <laughs> yeah. lessons learned, what perhaps did you learn from all of that experience? 
Yeah. Oh, my. It was just such a crazy time because, Javier, you know, I not only moved from Ohio to California, but really I changed careers right. from being a pastor for 30 plus years into an administrative role at Loma Linda University. I had envisioned a lot of time with students. Hmm. And so we were gearing up to, um, you know, have them over every week to our house. And we were going to just do lots of entertaining and, and so on and so forth. And then it just did not play out like that. Not hmm. even close. Yeah. <laughs> and so we get here and for starters, we couldn't find a house because we would put offers way above asking price. The day homes would go on the market around here, and then we would just get outbid. Mm. And so we we couldn't find a place to live. So we're living in this little apartment and uh, really didn't have a place to entertain students. But m more than that, they weren't here. Then mm -hmm. once COVID hit, right. <laughs> we went online. And so, you know what? What I've learned through all of that uh, is one of the things, just the resiliency of colleagues mm. uh, who, you know, just sort of rolled up their sleeves and said, okay, let's figure out how we're going to, how we're going to connect with students and how we're going to teach using a totally different modality. And so that has been very inspiring to see people come together and sort of muddle through it and yeah. through what we never could have envisioned. And so I'm just now starting to, this year, the students have been back on campus right. and we're starting to open up. Although today, three more people told me, Hey, I just got diagnosed with COVID. So I'm not good. So it's still kind of going on, mm -hmm. but it's a lot of prayer. And a lot of leaning into longtime friends uh, like Randy Roberts, who has kind of been here with us the whole time that we've been yeah. here. And a lot of people have been extremely helpful. Eventually, we bought a house, and that was just lucky because our realtor was getting ready to list it for them. And she said, you want to just keep it off the market and buy it? And we said, absolutely. Let's mm. just don't even... <laughs> Put it on the market. We'll just buy it. I don't even need to see it. Just hmm. get us the house. So if things are starting to feel like we're settling in. But Javier, we've been here almost three years. Yeah. So that that is the normal. So mm -hmm. I'm, I can't really say we're getting back to the what we used to know because that's all I've known is a pandemic hmm. and Zoom meetings. Yeah. It's funny because I ran into somebody, a colleague one of the deans of students in one of our schools mm -hmm. at a gala for the hospital. And she said to me, this is the first time we've seen each other mm. face to face. And it just really struck me that crazy. Wow. Yeah. You're right. Uh, even though we've been in dozens of right. meetings together and I just have never thought we've never seen each other <laughs> until mm. just a few days ago. Incredible. So, yeah, Zoom is my normal. <laughs> yeah. So, in essence, the last three years has been the aspect of 
adaptation, resilience, yep. and settling into the life that we're all living in different ways through that right. adaptation and resilience. Right. Zoom is not going away. Nope. Things are going to continue to be adapting even as we move forward. Right. I want to shift a little bit here, and I thank you for your time. You've authored 13 books, and I've been blessed to have several authors here in the podcast. And one of the questions that I, I asked them, or I've had the honor of asking several of them, is what is their writing process? And so, well, you got 13 of them to tell us about if, you know, what perhaps the, <laughs> what the writing process was for book number one, I'm, I'm guessing is a little bit different than book number 13. Uh, but you will correct me and help us out with that. And is writing something that you've always just enjoyed? I mean, obviously, because you've written 13 and a thousand plus articles. And so talk to us a little bit about that. I have always enjoyed writing. Hmm. Uh, and I've always enjoyed writing sermons uh, as much as I enjoy delivering them, hmm. even though the process is oh so grueling. And so you ask about process. Um, the first phrase that comes to my mind that has been my mantra through all of the books and all of the articles, and it's not original with me, I think many authors sort of recite this to themselves, but that's simply done is better than good. And so I just, when I sit down to start a book or finish a book or work on a book or a sermon or an article, that's where I start is just get words on the screen. Done okay. is better than good. Don't worry about if it's, if there's a better verb there, there probably is, but just get something done. And then that feeling of, okay, I've, I've taken the first few steps uh, and then the next day, I'll just take a few more steps and just get something done. Even if it's terrible and you end up not using any of it, done's better than good. Done's so it doesn't good. have to be good. It just okay. has to be done. So Let me, there you go, Javier. Start writing your book, my friend. Yeah, done, get on done. it. <laughs> just done. Get something done. Get, get something done. It's done. better than good. Sure. I, I, I can see that for sure. Let me jump in for a second here and say, before you even start writing, do you, how do you decide you know, what you're going to write on? It's been different with the different books. The first okay. couple of books were uh, written on assignment. Uh, they asked me to do uh, a youth devotional, call, mm. and it was titled Peace Like a Spider. Right. And then the second one was I'd Rather Kiss a Catfish. <laughs> and then, um, and so those, they just asked, the publisher asked me to to write those, so I did that. And then the next one was much more out of my own personal journey, what I wanted to write about. And that was titled A Diaper University. Diaper what University. being a newborn father or a, a new father hmm. teaches us about the heavenly father. And so Beautiful. I was just writing about the birth of our first child. And that is, is unlike any other experience in the world when suddenly you're a parent and it's the most incredible thing. So that one grew very much out of just where I was at in my world mm -hmm. at the time. And, mm -hmm. and I, like you say, I, I've always enjoyed writing. And so that was just kind of where yeah. my heart was at in those Beautiful. days. And then I think the next maybe five, six books, I sat down with the publisher 
at Pacific Press, and we had agreed on a a contract that I would write five five or six books. I forget exactly, but and then the way those sort of developed hmm. and evolved was I would I was at Walla Walla University at the time, and what you know, usually I would kind of combine them with writing sermons, and so a chapter would be a sermon basically. Okay, And so that I could kind of double dip and then I would let them know, Hey, I'm doing a series on James. Would you like that to be one of the books? And yeah, that sounds good. And so, or uh, the cure for soul fatigue, that's how those books happened. Um, and then, uh, soul fatigue really hit kind of a raw nerve, uh, with people because everybody feels burned out and stressed out and anxious and so on. And so then they said, okay, that one really, that one really hit a raw nerve. That one sold well, write a sequel to that. And so then Soul Matters was one of those books. And then, so that was kind of a lot of them. And then more recently have been more just kind of where I'm at. And so a couple, probably my two, you, you had mentioned that uh, you might ask me about my favorite books. Yeah. Tell um, us. Which one okay. is uh, <laughs> I, I got a feeling I know one of them, which one it is. Okay. Well, it's kind of like asking which one's your favorite daughter. Yeah. Because uh, I have two girls. <laughs> and uh, so I have to go, I have to go two on okay. this one, if okay. that's okay. Yeah. Um, the first one would be the book called No Greater Love. Mm. And it's a collection of stories that my dad told at communions. As a kid... I remember so well, my favorite Sabbaths were communion Sabbaths because my dad would forego the long sermon <laughs> and he would just read or tell a story of human sacrifice that illustrates uh, the, the cross. Mm. And uh, when my dad retired as a pastor, I went with a video camera back to all of his former churches and asked the members who were still there, who had been there when my dad pastored, I asked them, what do you remember about my dad? Uh, almost every time people said, I remember his communion stories. Mm. I loved his communion stories. Uh, I remember one gentleman in the Providence, Rhode Island church. He was the head elder at the time my dad pastored there. And by this point, he was probably in his 80s. Um, and I asked, well, what do you remember? And he said, well, I remembered your dad's communion ser- sermons. And uh, he said, I remember one story in particular. And I had heard the story many times. Uh, so I was very familiar with it. And he proceeded to just share uncanny details of the story. And I asked him, how long has it been since you heard that story? And he said, well, what is it? Uh, 25 years. Wow. I said, well, have you heard the story since or had you heard it before? No, I only heard it that one time. And it was a story of Hazel Miner and uh, dying in a snowstorm in North Dakota uh, and covering her siblings. And they, the siblings survived, but she did not. So those are the kinds of stories. Mm. And so I collected all of those stories and Joe Wheeler kind of helped me put together the anthology because he's done all those Christmas books. And, yeah. uh, 
and and others. Uh, and that was a difficult book to get together just because of all the laws and the copyright and you can't get the copyright some of these stories that are a hundred mm. years old and and you know and that that was a little less writing as it more was more editing and yeah. compiling and mm. trying to figure out if I'm gonna spend the rest of my life in jail because I didn't <laughs> get the right paperwork signed or whatever. But that just reminds me of my dad sure. who was just the most humble and gracious Christ-centered person I've ever known. And my siblings would say the same, that he just was always the same person at home as he was in the pulpit. He's, his whole career, he pastored a small local church, and that's mm. all he wanted to do. And what a lot of those church members remember about my dad, so that's kind of his legacy, is they loved his communion stories. And I love stories. Who doesn't love stories, sure. right? Beautiful. So, Beautiful. Yeah. No so greater love. One one yeah. book. And then the other book uh, that is special for similar reasons is the one, Are You More Spiritual Than a Fifth Grader? Mm. And I wrote that with uh, my daughter, Claire, who was in fifth grade at the time. And uh, so she kind of did a part at the end of each chapter as a fifth grader. And basically, it's just reworking the sermons of Vendon, mm. who was incredibly influential and impactful in my life. And mm. I loved, as a kid, I collected, you know, my friends collected baseball cards or coins or stamps, whatever. I collected Maury Vendon sermon tapes. <laughs> wow. Truly. I loved his stories. I loved his voice. It just had this mm. great voice. And I loved his theology. Mm. He had one sermon. That's it. It's all about a relationship with Jesus. Right. And mm -hmm. so theologically, I think I've kind of grown to be in a very similar space mm -hmm. as Maury Vanden in the sense of, I, I think that's right, that it's all about abiding in Christ and living a surrendered life, inviting him to abide in me. And mm -hmm. if, I, if yeah. I just focus there, then that's all I need to do. And so when that book came out, they put a picture of my daughter and me on the cover. And uh, Claire was at that age, <laughs> at this point, sixth, seventh grade. And her classmates were kind of teasing her about this book. And she was horrified. And I remember driving to school with the two girls in the back seat. And Lindsay's about five years older than Claire. And uh, Claire's just beside herself. She's, mm. Dad, get my picture off that cover. And I said, well, sweetheart, it doesn't work that way. I have nothing to do with the cover design or any of that. Mm. Um, but while well, she says, just I tell them to redo it. I don't want my... And finally, what calmed her down a little bit was uh, Lindsay, the older sister, pipes in with, Claire, Claire, relax. You got to remember, this is a book by dad. It's not like anybody's going to ever read it or see it. <laughs> so that helped her to know. That, uh, but I loved kind of going through that journey of writing the book, even though she wasn't all that into it at that point in her life. <laughs> and even when it came out, but I, I loved the process with her and cherished that memory. And then of course I, I love the theology of sure. the book. Sure. Well, um, we'll definitely 
So, um, yeah. put those in the show notes. No greater love, and are you more spiritual than a fifth grader? Thank and, you. So, were those? What's one of those? The book you thought I would say, or no? Well, I thought you would say about the one being a father. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Diaper University. Diaper yeah. University. Well, that Thank one you. Would yeah. Be, yeah. Give me three. Okay. Yeah. I'll give you three. <laughs> I don't want to diss my oldest daughter either. <laughs> there uh, you go. That was just so long ago. She sure. just turned 27. So that was a long time ago that no worries. I can't even hardly remember writing that book. <laughs> Do you have any books coming up? Any books that you would like to write? You know, they had asked me before COVID to reprint. Uh, my two devotional books. And so I did go through them and I updated them and made references to COVID and whatever. And then they said, well, we're, we're good on this year. So I need to get back with them because I've kind of updated them. Oh, so late eight or 10 years. I've been working on the working title was punchy paraphrases. And the idea was to, uh, have very modern, kind of like the message on steroids and modern, mm. very, very modern interpretations. You know, like if I sing with the ease of Celine Dion and do not love, it's like, a, you know, <laughs> has the value of Enron stocks or that kind of thing where you, you mm. make it extremely contemporary. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I have... I have gotten close, I think, with a couple of mainline publishers in the Christian world, but I've been working on that project for a long time, and mm. I uh, one of the spinoffs on that, but I've gotten nothing published, and I really want, <laughs> I really want to do that. So, Javier, this is what I'm thinking is this year I am not playing fantasy football, and I'm spending go. all of those hours that I wasted last <laughs> football season spending on finally getting some of these these book projects uh off my computer and into a publishing oh. house so oh, wow. we'll see what happens i don't know well maybe you can do both you know i, I perhaps perhaps <laughs> no no stop <laughs> carl i got one or two more questions before i okay. let you go but on on the essence of of the writing process kind of going back to that are are yeah. you more mm-hmm. of a wake up early in the morning and get it done? Oh. Are you kind of block a time sometime throughout the day? For years, the writing sermons and writing book chapters is kind right. of the same study and kind of the same discipline. Um, and so, no, it's morning. I am such a morning person and a just impossible to live with grouch in the afternoon <laughs> and evening. So, no, and my mind is so much sharper in the morning and so it's got to be morning and i would block out usually till noonish six seven hours i get up early typically and exercise and whatever and then i try to but you know the the discipline of writing sermons is like writing chapters in the sense that i have always written out a manuscript and then tried to commit it to memory and so that's very time consuming and it's it continues to be that mm. much <laughs> effort and just angst every yeah. sermon. And it's, it's, I've always been 20, 25 hours preparing for a typical for a sermon. sermon. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I can, I can certainly relate to a lot of that. But uh, Carl, oh, okay. to, to shift a little bit here before I let you go, uh-huh. I know your daughter's a pastor. Praise the Lord, right? Amen. Yes, um, amen. 
What advice did you give her when she began ministry? You know, normally I would ask this question, as I had mentioned to you earlier, I like to ask, you know, what would you tell the younger self? A question that is asked often and to people who have been in ministry for a long time, right? But, but in this case, what advice, if any, did you give to your daughter as she started ministry? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. The question she asks me now, hmm. uh, the most common advice or help that she asks from dad these days has to do with, dad, do you have a good story on forgiveness or do you have a good story on this <laughs> or that in helping her write sermons? Yeah. And so the other thing that, you know, she's, she's just in her second year. So she took a triple major in college, religion, English, and French. Wow. So not theology. And she wasn't really intending to go into pastoring, hmm. uh, but she is a youth pastor. And uh, not long after she got there in the middle of COVID, by the way. So it was a challenging assignment, as I suppose most are. And then they... They've been through all kinds of transitions that have been extremely difficult for a lot of the church members. Hmm. And yeah, I don't know how much detail I want to share here, but, but one of the things I have, you know, sort of labored with her on relative to what's going on, and they don't have a senior pastor and haven't for over a year now, hmm. is... And helping some of the patriarchs and matriarchs of that church who have given their lifeblood to, to building this church. And it's a beautiful church. And so I have labored with her from the side of an old person now, kind of <laughs> part of that generation, and say, Lindsay, you've got to understand this is really, really difficult in navigating a lot of issues. People, they, they struggle with the loss and the church that they love. And uh, you just, you have to be patient with these saints. And uh, so there's that. And the other thing I guess I continue to emphasize with her is just the importance of staying connected to Christ. Yeah, We've had a lot of conversations around how cruel people can be and how critical mm. they can be. And so yeah, I've had to give her some pep talks because she'll call me. It doesn't happen a lot, but occasionally she'll call me and just be in tears, inconsolable. And, you know, so-and-so just, just grilled me on such and such. Mm. And I feel so bad. I'm trying so hard. And I've been in that chair and I've received some of the most hateful letters you can imagine. And, uh, you know, sadly, it just kind of comes with the position, I guess. I don't mm. know. So I've kind of tried to encourage her. And I do that with all of there, There's many pastors in this area now sure. that I am very good friends with, my daughter included. And I kind of see God putting me in this for such a time as this, in this yeah. space to just be a real, true listener, encourager. Uh, I don't want to be critical of any of them because I know it is so hard. 
Hmm. And I just want to encourage them and say, it's okay. It's okay. You know? Yeah. Um, like this one just recently, she, I said, just put in bullet points what she said to you. And like you're sending her an email. So you may not want to send it, but just, just put down exactly what she said and say, this is what I took from our conversation. Mm. A, I don't dress appropriately. B, I, I stutter too much when I'm preaching. C, mm. I mean, it was just all these details of things like, why, 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 why do you do this to a young preacher? But, mm. uh, and so she did that. And then she said, I'm not, I'm not going to send it. And I was like, yeah, fair enough. But I think she felt like that was a helpful exercise. Yeah. Um, to sort of get in her mind what, and then kind of go through the list and say what applies, what doesn't apply as much, mm. what matters, what doesn't matter. But no, she's, she's had her struggles as every young pastor sure. does. Well, praise the Lord that she has first an incredible father that loves her. Right. Well, a big cheerleader and definitely loves her. Yeah. And, and then <laughs> praise the Lord that she has a, a cheerleader and somebody that will listen to her. And as you just mentioned, the fact that you're doing that with so many other pastors. And, and that's what I believe we all need that. We all need somebody that will listen to us, encourage us, and help us process uh, these tough conversations that um, we have as pastors, as leaders. Uh, I love the aspect of writing it down, if that's something that is helpful for many to do. I don't necessarily write them down <laughs> myself, <laughs> but I will do this. When I've had tough conversations, and I'm talking, you know, 20 years of ministry of in right. different places and conversations, and but as I've gotten older, I, I have, as I'm running, I know, shocking, right? As I'm running, for those that are listening and longtime listeners right. of the podcast and know me, but as I'm running, since I don't listen to music or I don't listen to podcasts either, by and large, I process things that have happened yeah. uh, depending when I run in the day or the, the day before. And I've, if I've had these, quote, tough conversations, then I begin to break down yeah. What exactly was said? Why did they say what they said? And then let me process that without any immediate response of, I can't believe they said that. And this is, you yeah. know, later, right? So if they right. said, well, you, you did this, you said this, you acted like this or whatever it was, I begin to do similarly to what you were saying for her to write down. I just do it more and I'm, um, Literally talking to myself sometimes. I know it sounds crazy, uh, Carl. I know some people may look at me and I'm talking to myself as I'm as I'm well, now with AirPods. Everybody's talking to themselves. Yeah, that is true. Except nobody even notices whether or not they're actually wearing AirPods that's anymore. True. That is true. So Plus, I'm good. outside, but it helps me. And I think in yeah. my own way, I, I do yeah. something similar. Is what I'm trying to say. And it's very it's very good because that way, I think sometimes we have these tough conversations. And, and sometimes we need to tell people, thank you for allowing us to sit down, hopefully, and, and have. Or now I'm hearing, you know, more and more, speaking of Zoom, people are doing it via Zoom. They'll, they'll have a conversation face-to-face, like you and I are having this conversation face-to-face, and then process it and then have 
another conversation perhaps when we've been able to process the first one, process everything that's been brought to the table in those tough times. And again, we're talking about leadership and pastors and uh, dealing right. with everything that they're dealing with, whether it's their first or second year or pastors that have been doing this for 20, 30 plus years like you and I, respectfully. And so I think that's just a, a good thing to do. Sometimes we want to resolve everything in one meeting and perhaps one meeting is about being able to air out what is happening uh, and then coming back a second time and saying, okay, you know, I've had the time to process what we conversed on the first time. Right. And and I'm at a better place now, hopefully, through prayer, through surrender, bringing everything right. back together, right? Through being right. in the presence of God and specifically talking to God about this situation now that you have spoken to me. So, I don't know. I kind of went on there in a little tangent, but it 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 made me think um, because of what you were saying about listening and talking to your daughter and specifically writing things down. What are what are your thoughts before we um, we let you yeah, go? Yeah, well, what it brings to mind uh, a few days after Lindsay was born, she received a letter in the mail at the church, hmm. and. In essence, it said, um, you know, dear Lindsay, keep in mind, she's like five days old. Yeah. Uh, this is just to, uh, you know, convey our sincere condolences that you have such a hypocritical, uh, terrible father. And he says this and he does that. And wow. he, I mean, it was just such a hateful letter Wow. to an infant, you know, really? and I'm so sorry you have to grow up in a home fathered by, you know, a, a jerk like him, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I just, and, and it wasn't signed. I remember calling my dear friend, Daryl Bigger, who pastored at the Walla Walla College Church when I was a student there. Mm. I asked him, what do you do with anonymous letters? Cause this mm. one stings. Wow. And, uh, I, I said, I know Bill Loveless says how, hey, he tells the church, if you don't sign it, I just look down to see who wrote it. And if nobody signed it, I don't read it. So just so that you know, I and Daryl thought for a moment and said, yeah, that's certainly an approach you could take. I uh, said, that's not what I do. Um, he said, I, I have always found that even really hateful letters like that one, um, he says, I've always found there's something I can learn, some way I can grow mm. because of it. And so I just look for whatever that is in the letter, and then I then I get rid of it. But I always read it, and I always learn what I can, and then I just leave judgment to God, and I don't try to figure out who wrote it, and, mm. and you know, I just learn what I can. So that has kind of uh, right. been my approach over the many years of uh, receiving a lot of letters like that, some signed, some anonymous, but, you know, I have found that there's always some kernel of truth in the criticism and there's ways that, you know, God can use even angry voices like that uh, to, to help me do better or to humble me in places where I need to be humbled. Mm. And so, mm. I don't know. It's a fine line, though, you know, as I sit yeah. with my daughter and she's, you know, just really struggling with things that people have said 
to her because a father's heart, you just want to protect that little mm, kid sure, and say, don't, don't let it bother you. But it, it is going to bother her. And so try to say, Hey, God's got you and just stay in the presence of Jesus and learn what you can and let's, you know, move on. Yeah. Carl, thank you so much. And please let her, your daughter, know that we are praying for her. I will be praying for her and lifting her up in thank prayer. Thank you. As well as it, you and your entire family and your ministry thank there you. at Loma Linda. Any last thoughts before I let you go? I just love your podcast. Thank you. Javier, I was listening to a few episodes mm. before coming on here. And I am sorry to say I did not know, but there are several in your list of 70 some now that I'm going back and I'm going to listen to them. So thank you for what you do. Hey, and, praise the Lord. Uh, I'm really excited about listening to some more of these podcasts. And I, if I could just quickly give a shout out to the interview you did with the Gibsons on return to plow and their mm. documentary, that was just moving. And I was in tears as I was walking my dog, listening to this. Mm. So good work, my friend. Uh, God's well, using you in a very powerful way. Uh, keep it up. Thank you so much, Carl. Thank you for affirming, as you just mentioned, that is something that you do so well. And uh, definitely shout out to the Gibsons. Invite them to Loma Linda. Here you go. I'm just I'm I'm hoping putting to. it out there. I'm working so on it. <laughs> if they're listening or if they listen to this, there you go. We're, we're asking oh, you to go to was... Loma Linda. And yes, I, I am. Yes. It, it was just so brilliant. What a beautiful podcast on mental health and forgiveness mm. uh, were my two main takeaways. Uh, just so, so good. And I'm going to watch the documentary with my wife this weekend. So, Yes, I, I highly encourage now that you mentioned that for sure. Number one, to go back and listen to that episode. But even if you don't listen to that episode, please watch that documentary. I've gotten a lot of positive responses from that, but that's credit to that documentary and uh, to the courage and the power of God working through the Gibsons, Melissa, and her family. So thank Amen. you for that, Carl. And again, thank you for your time. Blessings to you and your family. Anytime. Thank you. Well, I certainly hope that you were blessed, inspired, and challenged by my conversation with Carl Hafner. I know I was. Thanks again, Carl, for your time and words. Continued blessings to you and your family. Friends, please let me know what you think of this episode or any other. You can always contact me at Javier, J-A-V-I-E-R dot Diaz, D-I-A-Z at FloridaConference.com. I would love if you would rate and review the podcast. Thank you for listening, sharing, and subscribing to the Restore Podcast. Until next time. God bless. Thank you for listening to this Restore Podcast. We hope you've been blessed. Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss any of our inspiring episodes.